If you're looking for inspiration and challenge in the world of early years and Key Stage 1 education, then you've just found it. Welcome to the Early Excellence Podcast. Hello, everybody. I'm Andy Burt. Welcome along to the Early Excellence Podcast. In this week's episode, we talk to author and lecturer Kerry Murphy about her excellent book, A Guide to Special Educational Needs and Disabilities in the Early Years. Um, it's highly recommended. It's a great book. Um, so we're really lucky to catch up with Kerry, telling us all about the book, how she went about writing it and the content within the book, too. OK, so here's our discussion. I hope you find it useful. Uh, hi, Kerry. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you, Andy? I'm all right. Um, well, thank you ever so much for joining us um, and for, for giving up your time for the for the, the chat about about the book and about about your role and the different things that you do. Um, we're going to be talking about your book, which is a fantastic book, um, great book, all about, of course, special educational needs and disabilities within the EYFS. Before we do, um, just tell us a bit about yourself. Tell us a little bit about uh, kind of what you do generally and kind of how it, I suppose how you how it led into then sort of writing the book. Would you give us a bit of background? Of course, yeah. So, um, and do stop me, Andy, if I go off on a tangent because I do tend to start give my whole life history here. But I um, started out 16 years ago working as a, a shop floor early years practitioner. Uh, no prior knowledge or qualifications in early childhood. Um, and I was working over the summer period with in my mum's nursery um, because she said to me she didn't want me to be lazy over the summer. So she was like, you can come and help out and I was like oh gosh absolutely not I don't like children and I don't want to be around them two days later I was absolutely like wow this is this is really fascinating um, and actually it was a, a little girl a non-speaking um child who had a range of developmental needs and I just connected with her I just really really connected with her and that kind of started quite a long journey of working um in early childhood provision um I was a Senko deputy manager nursery manager kind of went through all those roles um and just always felt really really passionate about ensuring equity for children whose development looks uh, different and so after a few years, I then moved into a local authority role and essentially did the area Senko. So that was in a, a London local authority. And I was there for six years. And I'm known to be a little bit of a... Um, necessary trouble but causing quite a bit of trouble so if I see something and I think we can change that or we can do something new and so in local authority I just felt very oh just a little, a little bit disillusioned with the SEND system and found it that it was very much focused on um, fixing children um, on kind of a really curative approach and looking at problems rather than possibility thinking and I just really felt that that impacted both children and families and, and really reduced our capacity to celebrate that, that development can look different and, and we should celebrate that. And so I spent six years um, causing trouble in my local authority, essentially. Um, and that's kind of where the book, um, the starting points of the books, I wanted to chronicle that journey. And then I decided to pursue my doctorate. So um, I kind of started to think about moving on and, and really focusing on my research, which is in play and disabilities, and then started lecturing. So I've been lecturing 
Children for the past three years. Um, and my focus is early childhood development, which now actually has spanned beyond that. I'm teaching on the PGCE at Goldsmiths and I lead on the modules that are basically um, uh, covering special educational needs, disability and neurodiversity. I'm also neurodivergent myself, so I'm ADHD and autistic, and that really has shaped uh, a lot of unlearning for me, actually, really thinking about my role as a, you know, and I like to air quote expert as a send expert and actually really deconstructing what that means and, and kind of reconstructing how we really provide um, high quality support for early years, teachers and and families and children. So, yeah, that's me. Wow. Wow, what an interesting background. I think that's that's brilliant. When I meet people through the podcast like this, it's always great, you know, that, that so many people come into early years education from all kinds of different angles, I suppose. Um, and that's what's great here, isn't it? That you, you're bringing that expertise in terms of uh, special educational needs into uh, into education, in, into earlier settings and into school settings as well. Um, and you work, of course, as a, as a consultant too and support schools and settings uh, in that way too. Yeah, so um, I, as part of my ADHD, I am a yes person. If anybody asks me to do anything, I get an immediate, <laughs> there's a dopamine hit, I'm going to do it. So um, I tend to do a lot of consultancy and project work. So I work with several um, national organisations. So I'm an associate of early education. I've worked with Nason before um, and in the last couple of years really starting to branch out and to, to work with lots of different people, schools, settings and organisations to really think about um, developing equitable and intersectional provision. So thinking about the different identity markers of children and the funds of knowledge that they bring to our schools and settings and celebrating um, all of who children are really. So yeah, I've been, I've been doing that and I'm always kind of up to something. Um, trying to change the world slowly <laughs> is kind oh. of my aim. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, I've, I've been reading the book in preparation for, for talking to you. And I have to say, it's it's a really, it's it's a actually a great read. And I, and I know that sounds like an odd thing to say, in that it's it's a kind of an a, to a certain extent a practitioner or an or a, an, an academic text, and yet actually the way that you've written it, I think actually it will speak to lots of people. And I don't want that to sound patronising. I don't mean it to be. It's in that it's it's not overly formal. It is, it's very much talking about your experiences, talking about a clear advice to people, talking about child, talking about studies. Um, so that idea of um, kind of case studies and real life case studies of things that you, you, you have, uh, where you've worked with children within different settings and the, the discussions with staff and all of that. It's a very much a kind of a, a living, breathing kind of document, I suppose, of working with children with particular needs. And I think that that will speak to so many people. Um, I, th I think in all of us, all of us who've worked with young children, I think that there is a real anxiety that there is some, there is a child in our group. And those, those people who are listening to the podcast, I'm sure will associate with this that there is often a child within our group, whether it be a child within our reception class or a child in our nursery, that in your heart of hearts, you think, am I meeting the needs of this child? Is this child, am I, um, is this child happy and settled? Are, th are they getting what they need from being with me? 
And that's so difficult because I think as an early years teacher or practitioner, we're often put in a really difficult position. We don't have that, that level of expertise that actually we probably need in terms of working with children with special educational needs and disabilities. And yet we're asked to do that such a lot. And therefore, I think your book actually will speak to so many people. It really will. Yeah, and I think a few points there really. That the first one around the the accessibility of the book. It was a very intentional move. I felt really vulnerable about writing it in the way that I, I did choose to write it, but I really situated myself back into Kerry at the beginning of her career where I didn't possess the knowledge, I didn't have the qualifications. And, and I remember really acutely being very intimidated by some of the books that I did pick up or some of the conversations that I did have. And, and I often referred to it as this sometimes a little bit of a professional snobbery that if you don't know the technical terms or the complex systems that it could feel in a moment particularly with SEND where you already feel de-skilled and isolated because it takes some time to figure out particular children I just felt well what do I pick up and feel that is a bit more a bit more of a companion and so I felt very vulnerable doing that because I'd I'd been completing my master's where you, you're writing so academically that I thought, oh, suddenly I'm having to bring a bit of Kerry's personality into this and, and to share some, again, vulnerable experience that had happened to me across my career. But I thought I want practitioners, teachers, and actually a few parents have contacted me and said that they've gotten the book to kind of go, okay, we, we've cut out the jargon, we've cut out the complexity, and we're, and we're very, very much looking at the human system of special educational needs and disabilities because one of my frustrations working in settings, in schools, in local authority, and now at university is that everything does feel formal within SEND, everything's so systematic, there's a lot of bureaucracy. I think there's a lot of isolation for people when they're trying to do the best for children. And so I wanted to kind of tear that down a little bit and get comfortable with, with informalizing some of my writing and kind of going, I, I really do get that this can be difficult. And I think in addition to that, one of the things that I've really found difficult with the not 25 cent code of practice. I think there are major positives to that document, but it never sat, sat right with me that one of the, the statements is that every teacher is a teacher of send. And I kind of, mm. I have been quite vocal about that on social media and said, it feels a bit like a gaslight because how can I be a teacher of send if I don't have access to training, if I don't understand the inherent yeah. traits of children with different neuro um, neurotypes, um, if I don't if I don't have access to qualifications, if I'm not having that professional opportunity. And I think there's been this reinforcement that you can put a teacher into an environment and just through high quality teaching all needs can be met. And I fundamentally don't really believe that to be true. We have to we have to develop those different pathways of knowledge and one of the issues that we have particularly within SEND is there are so many misconceptions about different developmental and again air quote that conditions and we often go in with a lot of preconceived ideas of what autism um, presents like in children's development what ADHD presents like and we kind of go from there whereas actually when you explore these different neurotypes a lot of what we're taught about them is not accurate and so we have to kind of really drill down to understand the child first and understand that child as, as a person but then understand their inherent identity which is usually 
that neurotype as well. So, um, so yeah, it, it definitely felt vulnerable to me to, to release this book. And again, I was chronicling my time in a local authority that didn't always go well. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah. you know, it doesn't, we have this kind of performative local authority. We deliver these services, but we ourselves as a local authority were going through major funding cuts. We were trying to deliver a service that was being cut constantly. And so yeah. I wanted to really capture that, that domino effect when you're seeing that kind of systemic issue in SEND, we know that that then impacts the practitioners, the teachers and, and the child and family. So it was a, a bit of a, a call to honesty to say it is complicated and it is difficult and we need to stop saying that we can all teach children who are identified as SEND without demanding the, the supports and tools to, to do so, really. I thought that was one of the things that, that really draws you in as a reader is the, the honesty there that I think we've probably all read educational books you know practitioner guides and so on that are painting this picture of a world that doesn't quite exist you know that you think well that's not really the reality of it whereas I think actually you're very blunt and straight you know right from the very beginning in chapter one you're saying well actually you know yes of course the ideal is that every every teacher is a teacher of um of SEND and and yet actually that isn't that might be the ideal but that isn't really the case yet you know yes it's something to aim for but you can't just throw people in at the deep end and expect them to be able to swim with it and I think actually that's the situation that I think we're in really that lots of people are really struggling and they really need that guidance and support and so we we kind of hear certain words or certain phrases and kind of try to grab hold of things as as a structure or as a support um, one, one of the things that I, I found really useful from the book is that, that when you were talking about di having a diagnosis and how actually, whilst yes, of course, it's important to have a diagnosis, that that isn't the be all and end all. And yet, actually, I think I've worked in lots of schools where actually we've been pulling out all the stock to try and get the diagnosis. And rightly so. But all of the focus, all of the attention is on getting that diagnosis and the parents want that and the school wants that. But that actually that isn't really the crux of what's going to help this child is what I think you were saying. And I think that's right, isn't it? That that actually that's part of it, but it's not the whole picture. Yeah, it's um, it's a complicated topic. It's a really loaded topic. And actually, one of the things that I'd said early on when the book was published is that there's some ideas within the book that I've read back on and thought, oh, I think perhaps my journey, like I've changed upon my yeah. journey. But yeah, I think essentially my, my point with that is that you do see this huge haul from everyone going, get the diagnosis, because we see the diagnosis as the gateway to what will end up being imaginary support. So it's almost like once we've got the diagnosis, I think a lot of particularly parents in their head think, well, once we have that, that label, then suddenly we're going to have this gateway and there's going to be this and there's going to be this. And I think the disappointment, the crushing disappointment for families and teachers is that while that diagnosis is absolutely vital and so important, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get a higher level of support. It doesn't mean that you're going to get the kind of magic key to like, right, now we've got the diagnosis, we get all this funding, we get all this training. Many parents are left 
even more confused and go, well, where do I turn to now? And that really, I found that really disconcerting. And so whilst I would always encourage to seek diagnosis, because I think it's vitally important for understanding yourself and your identity. And, and I think I am a believer that the earlier, the better with diagnosis. Um, I, I think we have to be really clear about the, the difference between getting a diagnosis for a child to be able to understand their lived identity and diagnosis as a gateway to gain and support because they, it just doesn't match up currently. And I know the government are making steps to make that better, but as you said, we're, we're just, it feels like we're still in our infancy and truly having a SEND support system that is nuanced, that is diverse, that is that helps children to thrive and I think that that's the concern and and when you go into because obviously my part of my job is going into schools and supporting teachers and you can see that isolation you can see that frustration of I have got a class of 30 and I've got two or three children that are on um send support and just the frustration of I'm expected to be able to support them but I just don't have the tools or knowledge and so yeah it's it, it's tricky um, but I do believe that diagnosis is really important I think the other big point that I was making in the book as well which I, I you know I, I've really experienced this a lot is the, where labeling can go wrong is where we use the diagnosis as a justification for labeling the child as a problem and so you see a lot of diagnosis speculation which I find really frustrating where the minute a child shows any inherent trait of say autism lines things up oh they must be autistic and it's that speculation can be really treacherous really it can be really difficult because yeah. we, we have to be careful about how we're speculating really well a lot of those similar traits you know that come up quite a lot within schematic play that happen anyway at certain developments developmental stages don't they you see that a lot anyway you know they're lining things up or filling things up and tipping things out and all of those sorts of things so yeah absolutely i think we've got to be very careful that we don't just look out for the most obvious thing and think right that's it yeah, no, I think that's really useful for people. And on that point as well, I think the, the issue with speculating about diagnosis or traits or what some people consider symptoms is that we see so many children engaging in schematic play and we value that. But the minute we identify it as an autistic trait, it becomes, we, we pathologize mm. it. So it suddenly becomes a symptom. And that's where my doctorate is really focusing on is why when a child who is autistic um, lines things up, why does that become pathology? why does that become a problem yet the other child engaged in schematic play and similarly the way we see that we know that autistic children and ADHD is and dyslexic and dyspraxic we know the communication identity of those children differs but we kind of say well their way of communicating is wrong and other children's way of communicating is right and so we need to get this group to communicate that way rather than going let's help both of those groups actually connect. Let's look at the different and celebrate the different ways that we do communicate. So, yeah, there's just so much to unpick with it, I think. There is, absolutely. The other thing that I think people will find really useful in the book is those sections where you talk about our language. So the language of the practitioner talking about the child who might have a particular need, a specific need or a disability and how we kind of can turn it on its head a little bit and not talk about it in one way, but talking about it in another way. Um, you know, that sort of really making sure that we are posit being positive about a particular need, perhaps. You know, that sort of idea that I think, I think is so easy to fall into the trap of not being positive, of, you know, of, of identifying difficulties rather than actually seeing some positives within that. Yeah, and I think, like, 
I think it's really important as well to because sometimes I'm I'm aware that I can be a bit idealist and I can probably verge on toxic positivity at times I think I, I do think I'm guilty of that and I think with the conversations I often have with teachers and practitioners and indeed families is that you don't want to invalidate that when you do go into your workplace whether that's a nursery or a classroom and there is a child that does behave learn act demonstrate different learning skills and you're expected to treat to um, treat the children to kind of a one size fits all model, which we we do know um, schooling systems can have that issue. It can be frustrating. You know, I, I think we need to acknowledge and we need to be able to engage deeply with those complex emotions that we have about children who present differently, and that it's okay to feel that complexity whilst also thinking more holistically about their development. And so. The reason I mentioned the toxic positivity is that I can see with the neurodiversity movement, for example, is that, you know, we're, we're kind of stripping away all the, the negative language. We don't want to use the term disorder. We only want to talk about strengths. And, and I think that that's a, a misconception that that's what neurodiversity is about, when actually it's just about understanding the holistic landscape of development and recognising that every human has strengths, every human has weaknesses and areas where they, they are... Um, demonstrating good skills and areas where they're not so good and so in in the schooling system we often hear about the spiky profile and that's always referred to um to children with send but i don't know a human that doesn't have a spiky profile we you know we might get through school and do well but we know that generally there are things that we're good at and things that we're not so good at and so what i work with teachers on is and practitioners is de developing um which emerges from Penn Green's approach the celebratory approach so looking at strengths and interests rather than saying what is the delay ask what the difference is because for a lot of children it's not a delay it's a developmental difference and then thinking in about the areas of need and where there might be limitations within their learning and when you look at it from that holistic landscape it makes your job so much more enjoyable because you're then able to plan more meaningful experiences for that child when we only focus on the problems the problem becomes bigger um, and, and I always say that with diagnosis if we deliver diagnosis as a problem then it's a problem if we deliver it as wow, we understand more about you now and we can meet your needs. That's something to celebrate. You know, I always say to people who yeah. get diagnosed, congratulations, congratulations, because it's a positive. There might be difficulties, yeah. but it's a, it is a celebratory, a celebratory thing, really. So I think our language really can be transformative for our children's outcomes. I think, I think what is always the challenge for teachers and practitioners is that we already need to have a, a, a great knowledge of child development. We already need to have that uh, in order to be able to do our job effectively. And we, we talk about that a lot on training, that the real importance of having that foundation of understanding child development and all of the all of the, the quirkiness of it and the, you know what children will do and how they will do it, all of that kind of thing. What, one of the things I really liked about the book is there's a section talking about not talking about milestones, but talking about inch stones, that, that actually when we're talking about children with, with particular needs, with special ed educational needs and disabilities, we're talking about the kind of the micro steps, aren't we? The kind of the, the much, much smaller steps. So taking that understanding that you have around child development and really, really looking at it in much, much smaller detail. And I, what I think people will find really useful from the book are the suggestions for different documentation that people can use. So you mentioned the Penn Green document just before. 
that I think is a great document. And there are others as well, aren't there? You know, there are others that you suggest within the book as well. Yeah, um, and again, that again has been a journey that I've been on. So I must credit my wonderful friend, Sarah Doyle, who first introduced me to the idea of inch stones. And I was like, what are those? And she was like, they are no less important than the milestone, but um, the inch stone for her, because she's a parent of, a, of an autistic child. And she said, I was so used to going into my, my son's nursery and he was never meeting the milestones in the neurotypical way. And he never was going to meet those milestones because his development is different. And she said, I'd go away and I'd think, oh, there's so many wonderful things about him and there's so many things that he can do. And so with a group of parents, they would meet um, regularly and they would talk about the inch stones. And, and so while it felt like a smaller step, she was like, it wasn't, it, they're, they're huge steps for, for the children. Um, but she was like, actually, when you have an opportunity as a parent to deconstruct development, a little bit and understand why those building blocks of development are important she said it, it really helped her to see her child in different ways and so a lot of the work that I've been doing over the past few years is looking at what is out there then that actually describes divergent development I'm going to be honest there isn't much <laughs> you know we are limited on that and penguin is a really really good starting point and what I figured out was happening, um, and, and I don't necessarily think this is right, but lots of local authorities have got their development matters or they've got their national curriculum, they've got their child development statements, which look at normative development. And so what a lot of local authorities and indeed a lot of settings have started to do is develop their own guidance for divergent development. I would love that to be more centralised. I think it's really disappointing that our, that we don't have we don't see that more widely from a, a centralised point. But actually, what I have been able to see through different local authorities who often make these documents freely available is that people are wanting to understand deconstructed child development and they're wanting to understand the diversity of that. Um, and so I've kind of been on a bit of a mission over the last few years of like who is talking about development that looks different. And what I have to say is social media media has become a um has become a really really useful way of um of gathering uh, viewpoints so what you can now access now is um on social media there's a lot of neurodiversity affirming specialists that are actually giving us alternative views sorry no, I'm <laughs> um, sorry but yeah, so um, on um, on social media, there is now lots of people actually producing documents. And and again, we don't want to give practitioners loads of paperwork or teachers loads of paperwork because there's already enough. Um, yeah. But I think there's, there's just been a few moments where you go, wow, I didn't even know about that. I didn't even know that that was a stage of development. So one of the things that I've been learning a lot about recently is the fact that um, there are different um, types of language acquisition. Lots of children learn language in building blocks by via building up single words but actually it research has found that over 75 percent of autistic children actually learn language in a different way known as uh, gestalt processing so they learn language in blocks rather than in single words as a practitioner i never knew that so i was trying to build language up rather than understanding um echolalia and different gestalt um scripts and so only in the last year i've, I've been in early years uh, for 16 years as a specialist it's only in the last year that i've gone gestalt processing this is magical this is brilliant yeah. and suddenly had that moment of oh my gosh the amount of children i've supported over my career that were gestalt processors and so when we're able to look at development much more in a much more diverse way that the learning that comes from that is just 
momentous really um yeah absolutely it's, it's the sort of thing that of course i think if when you're although you might be looking specifically at this that detail that level of detail because you're thinking about a particular child within your class or within your nursery actually although although yes that might be your focus really probably the benefits are beyond that that actually the benefits are more in terms of working with with the whole group of children that actually although although you won't have children who necessarily exhibit certain traits or or, or necessarily sort of that you, you've picked out as as children that you've got a real concern about that actually your you, that breadth of understanding of child development of how young children learn will actually help your teaching more broadly i think won't it i think it's um, one of the fundamental principles that i really i really do believe in and and i do think that we do need the different stages of intervention but one of the things that i talk about in the book is and i kind of made this up in my own head was this idea of intervention integration we often talk about integrating children into environments which i really don't agree with it's not about the child having to change to fit in but actually if we've got a child that has divergent development or has a disability um, and we're using different intervention programs or different approaches what you have to do with the intervention is you have to take what is happening within it within the intervention and you have to think how does the intervention itself integrate back into the everyday because if you're building some of those key skills from particular intervention programs into your everyday practice they benefit all children including those children whose development does look different so i think this idea of um of whole um whole class um adaptive teaching for example is is a really really the important one um, and I always say to teachers you're building up your toolkit over time so it's not just kind of working to one standard it's actually adding that diversity to your teaching so that when you do have a child that comes in it's already in your toolkit to know actually ADHD is they fidget they need to move to think they are gonna you know be impulsive and actually that's quite good that can really build a positive atmosphere in my environment if I'm able to teach to it and um, so one of the things that I'm working a lot with my PGC students on at the moment is getting rid of whole body listening because whole body listening only serves and actually I would question whether it serves neurotypical children but this idea of sitting still fingers on lips arms crossed eyes forward listening ears we don't all pay attention in that way so if we expand our idea of not whole body listening, but actually developing whole body communication with them more inclusive to those learners that, that are frenetic, that need to move in different ways. And when teachers carry that out and, and kind of, cause you know, I always say to them, experiment with it, enjoy implementing new strategies and techniques. They come away and go, I connected more with my children. I built more connections with my children because I was more um, all-encompassing within what I do and often it is that it's the behaviors and the attitudes that we have as teachers that is indeed the strategy we've all heard mm. that kind of cliche of you are the strategy you are you are the intervention um, yeah. and I think teachers are often kind of trained in the way of thinking that everything is externalized to their classroom so we need an intervention program or we need an out of class or we need a resource or we need this and it's like it it, it actually is all within your environment um, and that can be frustrating to some because they, they don't want to believe that. But it really is. We, we're really powerful um, as interventionists ourselves. No, I, I agree completely. I think one of the things that I find is that I think sometimes we're too quick to take children out of 
our learning environment to go down the corridor to go and then work in a room down the corridor with somebody and then half an hour later they come back and they're back in the room when I think actually if we're saying that this environment is a language rich environment or if we're saying that this environment provides sensory experiences or this environment builds builds on children's interests and allows them to express their ideas then that really ought to be for it, it, that's a tool in itself you know that's an amazing tool in itself to be using i th i think what frustrates me sometimes is is that our first thing that we go to in terms of supporting children in, in lots of different ways is the room down the corridor when actually we have got so many other things that are already there within that environment within a space that hopefully the children already feel quite comfortable in they hopefully already feel fairly secure within and it's very much familiar and that's where children are actually going to going to do their best stuff you know they're, they're going to throw hopefully because they feel secure and confident they're not likely to do that in quite the same way in an abstract way down the corridor looking at some flashcards you know do you see what i mean and that works sometimes don't get me wrong I'm, I, I think there are probably some times when that works but I don't think it's a one-size-fits-all thing where the room down the corridor has to be the tool that we use every time. No, and it's um, and it, again, it's a it's a tense topic for a lot of teachers, um, and I think it does require. It's about school culture and because and, what a lot of teachers and practitioners will say, well, there's a top-down pressure. We have to do that, and it's like, yeah, I get that there are those different school cultures that dictate to taking children out of class, and and again, I think there are times and and places where. I, Actually, some children do need to get out of that main environment. It's overwhelming. So if you're going for nature time or you're going to a sensory space or you're going outside, absolutely out of class intervention can be phenomenal for those children that find the demands of the classroom just too much. Um, and, and I think it does really support the flight stress response in a lot of children so absolutely out of class can work but yeah i totally agree that what we are seeing is that children are being put into intervention groups and and this is the kind of hill that i am going to die on but the part of my doctorate work <laughs> is that lots of our intervention programs and it's a hard thing to confront but lots of our intervention programs are trainings in masking so children are taken off and, and they do the flashcards or they do the you know attention and listening intervention and you're teaching children who are fundamentally different in their learning approach to behave more and air quote normally or neurotypically so that training what the child then learns over time is who I am is not welcomed and I need to learn to be able to fit in with a group. The other big problem with out-of-class intervention is we know that children who are neurodivergent or disabled experience higher rates of bullying and I truly believe it's because from the earliest years those children are taken out of the environment and what that creates in the in the um, community group of children is it creates othering so oh they're the special needs kids they go off somewhere else because they don't fit in here and it creates the early discrimination and prejudice that we see that children go well they're the special needs ones they then come back into an environment where relationships have already been building so then those children become isolated from each other and, and I think that's what we need to see going forward we need to see intervention approaches that are inclusive of all children so that not only neurodivergent children are learning how to understand their identity markers but neurotypical children are becoming more comfortable 
with understanding those children that are different to them. And that's there's been a lot of work by Dr. Damian Milton on the double empathy problem. And it's the fact that everything is put on the, his work is around autism. All the pressure is put on the autistic person as the person who has got difficulties in communication that fails to socially interact, that can't sustain um, relationships or connections. And what Dr. Damian Milton talks about is actually that that's not it there is a empathy and communication go both ways so it's a problem for both um communicators but it's the autistic person that goes no you're the wrong one and this one's the better and so if we actually address that it's a problem going both ways our interventions will help to help us to feel more comfortable different communication styles and i think that that leans into research that we've seen around neurotypical and non-disabled people feeling quite anxious around neurodivergent and disabled people because they don't understand the communication the the inherent trait but if neurotypical and non-disabled people did understand that then it reduces that that fear or anxiety and that's something i've experienced myself i know people can be a bit nervous when i say i'm autistic because they've got an idea of autism in their head and they're waiting to see if those stereotypes come true um and and that can cause conflict in that in that, those interactions so we need our children in the classrooms we need to move on from this fitting in mentality and we need to help all children belong because belonging leads to thriving and that's kind of yeah, yeah. because i think i think there is a danger isn't there that we're, we're aiming for uh, a kind of inclusive nature we're in, aiming for inclusivity and yet actually within that if we are then taking those children out all of the time and then back in all of the time that's not really being inclusive that i mean as you were saying that actually that can be more damaging to a certain extent if we're not careful particularly in the long run if if we're talking about those relationships not being built and and of children seeing those children who were going out and coming back in as being different we're kind of we're, we're highlighting what's already there to a certain extent and making you kind of really blowing it up almost aren't we I think if we're not careful yeah 100 percent. and and what we're also doing in that moment is we're taking an opportunity away from a teacher to develop their, their teaching toolkit because and, and I've seen this in my observations that you'll be in a class of 30 and you'll have your autistic child or your ADHD and the TA takes that child off to say a workstation and so the teacher is teaching the 29 and you go oh but that one child is separated and and what's really uncomfortable about that is everyone's missing out then everyone's missing out on an opportunity to really develop that cohesive um, form of inclusion the teachers missing out on opportunities to diversify their teaching strategies we've got a you know we've got to kind of then think about what's the TA's knowledge of SEND? Are they just shadowing or um, crowd controlling children with SEND? So it, it just, it creates a longer term disruption to the, the development of teaching practice. Um, and yeah, it just feels, it just feels difficult. And I think the other point that always kind of comes into my head is recognizing that inclusion doesn't always go right. I think we have this idea that we need to tick an inclusion box and say, yes, we're inclusive. We've ticked all the boxes. We're done. 
it's not, it's an ongoing, consistent commitment to confronting and interrogating our practice. So I always talk about the Kathy Duck Brown quote, um, inclusion is a state of becoming, not being. Because for me, when I'm speaking to teachers, I'm like, I am not expecting you to be perfect. There, there is no such thing as perfect. I'm expecting you to be good enough but I'm expecting you to continually interrogate where possible how your practice actually includes all learners. And some days you're not going to get it right. Some days you're going to flip your lid. Some days you are going to choose crowd control or you're going to choose behavior management strategies. But on the days that you get it right, it's going to build your your knowledge and toolkit. And, and yeah, I think acknowledging that yeah. inclusion is something that we're all working at as i said 16 years in every day i wake up and i go i've done something wrong i've got something wrong again i read parts of this book and i go i don't know if i believe that anymore so it's life is about kind of growing and 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 having the courage to change our minds i think is a really important part of it all as well is going actually i did this practice for a long time and i no longer prescribed to it i've yeah. moved on and celebrate that yeah. that you've moved on but I, th- I think all of those doubts and fears are very much as i said right at the very beginning what teachers and practitioners feel when we're talking about special educational needs generally in that i think probably all of us um feel kind of at times a bit de-skilled, that we don't really know enough, that we need that support. And I think to, I, I think for, for a lot of us, it leads us to just feel guilty that we're not doing enough. And then I think that if we're not careful, that feeling guilty, it means that we close down, that we then don't look for support because we're feeling guilty that somebody's going to say, well, you're not doing it right. You're not doing, you know, they, that somebody's going to come in and go, well, you, you're really not getting this right at all. And so when we're less likely to go looking for that support because I think we feel guilty about not doing it right. And yet, actually, I think what I really like about the book is that it's so open and so so very level in terms of talking about the, the kind of what, what you've done that you feel has gone right, what you feel that you've done that you've learned from, the kind of the, the, the very practical guidance, I think is brilliant. You know, the case studies throughout, the questions to consider, the things to think about, the discussions that you've had with people. It's so, it's so accessible that I, I think it's, yeah, it's fantastic. So I would certainly recommend, you know, people who are listening to the podcast, I would absolutely wholeheartedly recommend the book. Um, it's, um, we'll put a link actually in the, in the information to the podcast, we'll put a link so people can click straight on the link and go straight to the book and have a good look. Uh, yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. Um, Kerry, thank you so much for joining us for the podcast. It's, it's been wonderful to speak to you. Um, it's, it's, I think it's it's really interesting to talk generally about EYFS practice and include special educational needs within that. I think we don't do that enough. I think we talk about we talk about EYFS practice and then almost like as an add on, we talk about special educational needs. And even in doing that, we talk about those children just being different. And that is, again, is part of the problem, I guess. And yet, actually, what's great through talking to you is that we're talking about effective practice overall and effective practice around special educational needs very much within that. And I think that's really powerful. That's such a powerful message. So thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome.
Okay, so there you go. Thank you very much to Kerry for joining us on the podcast. Um, really interesting conversations there. Um, we're really pleased to be stocking Kerry's book at Early Excellence. So um, as usual, we'll put a link in the podcast information so that you can get hold of your copy of the book. Um, I definitely would recommend it. Now, if you found the episode useful, and I'm sure that you did, then please feel free to, to like, subscribe and share it far and wide. Let's get those messages out there. Okay. Thank you very much, everybody. That's about it for us for this week. Um, have a good week and we'll see you next time.